All right, all right, all right. Here we go. It's a good Sunday. Easter's next weekend. My buddy Hunter's getting baptized at the end of the service, so I'm pretty amped up. On top of that, we're coming off of our Men's Freedom Weekend, which, as always, was incredible. Uh, lots of incredible stories coming out of the men's lives that were here this weekend on the team side and the attendee side. If you are a man and you want to get connected at Wilderness Freedom Weekend's the ticket, and our next one will be in October, and we'll be sending out lots of save the dates and stuff for that. But it's it's always kind of overwhelming what God shows up and does at these weekends. Um, we know it's springtime, it's just now starting to warm up, but summer camps are right around the corner. And uh, if your kid wants to go or to the kids' camp or the youth camp, uh, we need to get them signed up. It's a $100 deposit, and we say this all the time, but I want to say it again. Don't let money be a reason your kid doesn't go to camp. We will make sure your kid goes to campus. Funding is a problem. You let me know or Jared and Dallas know. We'll take care of that. Um, and speaking of Jared and Dallas, they're not here, so I'm going to talk about them um, because they wouldn't like this if they were here. Guys, Jared and Dallas, if you don't know them, uh, Jared runs all of our uh, student stuff, middle school and high school students, and then Dallas does everything for our children's ministry from birth all the way through fifth grade. And they got married and moved to Tyler. Neither one of them were from Tyler. Uh, they really only knew about five people in Tyler. They came here to be our summer interns and never left. And they have devoted the first years of their marriage, uh, their early 20s, to serving us and to serving our kids. And I, I take that very seriously. And if you didn't know, they're having a baby in July. And so as well as they have served us the last three years, this is an awesome opportunity as a church for us to serve them. And there's going to be baby showers and all that stuff. There's not going to be any lack of diapers or any of that. They got, we got all that covered. But if you want to serve them, I'm going to tell you the quickest way, the easiest way, and the best way that you could do that, and that is by serving in our children or student ministry, especially this summer, uh, because when they have that baby, we know they're going to be out for a while. We want to give them time to be out for a while, and we're going to need some extra help in some of those kids' classes on Sundays and on Wednesday nights. So if that's already kind of been on your heart anyway, or maybe for the first time you're like, you know what, that I could probably commit to do that every now and again. Kids' classes, it's a rotation. You're not committing to do it every single week. But we would really love to show them how much we appreciate them, and that is a way that as a church we can do that. So I'd encourage you to do that. Also, next Saturday, I'm going to talk about this more at the end because I want you all to know how awesome this is going to be. We have an Easter egg hunt next weekend out at the Tuttle Ranch. It will be Saturday at 4 p.m., and if you want to go to this thing, you've got to RSVP. you got to text in, and when you text the number on the flyer, they're going to get your email address and the names of the people that are going, and then they email you this ticket, which you'll have to give them at the gate, and they email you this release, this waiver, for everybody in your family, so you can have that filled out when you get there. And once you get there, it's going to be nothing but fun. And our prayer is that you would invite some families to this that maybe you've tried to get to come to church, but you couldn't get them to come, because if they go to that Easter egg hunt, they're going to have a good time. They're going to be grateful you invited them, and you're going to be proud that you brought them to it. It's going to be top-notch. I mean, there's a baby kangaroo. Who doesn't want to see a baby kangaroo? Petting zoo, pony rides, games, Easter egg hunt with money in them. I mean, it's, it's tops. Uh, the Easter story will be told, and you don't want to miss this. Again, I'm going to talk about it a little bit more at the end. Uh, but I hope you take that opportunity next week to go to that because it's going to be a good time, I promise. Um, We've decided since Easter's next week and definitely going to be talking about the resurrection that we wanted to kind of talk about the story leading up to the, direction, uh, to the resurrection. And in order to do that, I kind of picked these two characters that were behind the plot to have Jesus arrested and eventually killed. And uh, last week we talked about Joseph Caiaphas that was the high priest 
and he's the guy behind the whole plot and, and kind of got things worked out with Rome to have him killed. Uh, but today we're going to talk about the most famous bad guy from the story of Jesus. But I want to do that by starting with a question. And the question is this. Do you ever try to bargain with God? I mean, I do. At least I used to. I don't know if I'm willing to admit that I still do. But for me, it probably started with the little things. Like, God, if you'll just let me pass this test that I didn't study for, I promise I'll read my Bible every day next week. Or, God, I remember praying this prayer, if you will just let her be interested in me, I'll surrender my life to be a missionary in Ethiopia like Miss Teresa. And I didn't end up in Ethiopia, so I obviously didn't get that one. Or, I remember praying, God, if you just don't let my parents find out, I'll surrender to, like, full-time ministry. I mean, that's why I'm up here preaching right now. They still don't know. All right, they still don't know. But as I've gotten older, the terms of those barters and bargains with God have gotten a little bit more serious. And if I'm honest, it's still tempted to do that, to try to strike a deal with God. I bet you have too. We all try to get God in on whatever our thing is. And there's something in us that wants to leverage God and his power for our purposes. And so we say to God, God, if you will, then I will. And so we might barter with prayer or church attendance or generosity or some form of obedience. Or maybe that used to be you, but that's not you anymore because you tried that in the past, but it didn't work out for you. And since God didn't, forget about it, right? If God had behaved the way that you thought he ought to behave, then you would have behaved too. But he didn't come through for you, so you're just writing the whole thing off. And today's character tried to strike a deal with God, and he actually traded his relationship with Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Today's character was a pretender, he was a sellout, he was a narc, he was a con artist who tried to get Jesus to do his bidding, and when Jesus didn't, he bailed. Unfortunately, when I look in the mirror, see a little bit of him in me, and I don't think I'm the only one. Our character today is Judas Iscariot. And with Judas, there were always three sides to every story. There was the right side, the wrong side, and his side. And his side was always the side that had the most profit to be made for himself. And when there was something in it for him to follow Jesus, he followed. But when it became apparent that there was more to be gained by siding with the people who had plotted against Jesus, he flipped sides. I think Judas' story is relevant to us because there's something in all of us that wants to leverage God and his power for our ends. And when he's no longer willing to work for us, we turn away. When he won't bargain, we bail. And some of us have walked away from God because he didn't keep his end of the bargain, and we forget that he never even agreed to the bargain in the first place. And some of us have walked away from God in spite of the fact that he maintained his end of the deal, but in your eyes, it wasn't enough. You wanted more, and so you let yourself off the hook of fulfilling your end of the deal. But as Judas learned, God doesn't bargain. He can't be suckered into our schemes. We have no bargaining power with the creator of the universe. There is nothing we have to offer that he needs or wants. But for Jesus, or for Judas, Jesus was a means to an end, his end. But you need to know that he wasn't the only one. In fact, all 12 of the disciples really did the same thing. And I want to kind of back up to kind of set this story up and, and the whole thing that's about to go down. 
And there was this guy that we just know as the rich young ruler. We don't know his name. We just know he had a lot of money. He was a young guy, and he had a lot of authority. That's all we really know about him. And he showed up to have a private meeting with Jesus, and he asked Jesus, what is the secret to eternal life? And Jesus said, just follow all the law and all the commandments. And the guy was like, yeah, I've already been doing that, which he hadn't. Jesus knew that. So he was like, okay, cool. Then you're well on your way. Here's the second step. The second step is sell everything you own. Again, he was rich. Give it all to the poor. And then you physically jump in with these other 12 guys and follow me. To that, the rich young ruler was like, no, 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 no. You don't understand how much money I got. I got too much stuff. And he couldn't do it, so he walked away. And, and Jesus explained to his disciples that it's really difficult for people with a lot of stuff to choose to follow Jesus. And that kind of got the disciples thinking. In fact, it kind of puffed them up a little bit. And Peter, who is known for talking before thinking, in Matthew 19, 27, he's like, yeah, you're right. It's hard for those guys uh, to, to leave all that stuff and follow you. But guess what, Jesus? We left everything to follow you. I mean, we know it's hard. You've got to give us the credit. We did it. And then he asked a question, and he really should have just not asked this question out loud. But this question is one that I have certainly asked, and I'm pretty sure you have too, when we're deciding whether or not we want to follow Jesus. So he keeps going in verse 27. He says, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? I mean, we are following you, Jesus, but what exactly do we have to gain for this? What's in it for us? And that question really showed the hearts of these guys because after Jesus was arrested and there was nothing to gain and everything to lose, they all, all 12 of them, bailed on Jesus. Jesus didn't throw them out. They walked away. And eventually, one by one, they kind of came to the point where they were ready to lay down their agendas and take up his, all of them, except for our boy Judas. Judas, along with the rest of the disciples, had an Old Testament expectation of what the Messiah was supposed to be. They had a picture of how this thing was going to play out. And the Old Testament was pretty clear about a couple of things. One, God was going to send a king, and that that king would reestablish the kingdom of Israel as it had been in the days of David and Solomon. And the Messiah was expected to be a great reigning, conquering king. And Jesus was obviously a man from God, and he seemed to fit some of those descriptives. But there were a few exceptions. For one, Jesus seemed a little bit too passive to lead a rebellion against the Roman Empire. He talked a lot more about love than he did war. And he didn't even really seem to hate the Romans that much. Like, he approached them and treated them with respect and honor. He even encouraged people to pay taxes. And Jesus hadn't done anything to organize an army. He hadn't put any sergeants or captains in place. He hadn't started recruiting men. He hadn't started doing any of that stuff, and stuff was starting to heat up. There was a lot of pressure coming on Jesus. And then Jesus was really always at, at odds with the temple leaders. And if the nation of Israel was going to overthrow the Roman Empire, that temple system and that temple guard and those laws, were they were going to have to be bought into that. And so if Jesus couldn't even get along with the current religious structure of the day, how was he going to lead this kind of uprising? On top of that, they were broke. I mean, they, if you're going to lead a rebellion, you've got to have some funds. You're going to have to pay mercenaries. You're going to have to buy weapons. You're going to have to do a lot of other stuff, pay some political bribes, all the stuff that goes with that. And Jesus hadn't even begun to build any kind of war chest or to have money for stuff like that. But Judas, along with the rest of the disciples, 
just thought that Jesus was biding his time. I mean, he had talked a lot about a coming kingdom. He didn't deny the fact that he was a king. He was from the line of David. So all of those things added up. And they just believed that, you know, eventually it was going to be like, uh, you know, Scooby-Doo where they peel off the mask of the bad guy. He was just going to be like, I'm not really a rabbi. I'm a king. And then that, that everybody was going to be excited about it. And the assumption was that whoever supported the king while he was rising to power was going to be rewarded with a position and money and an estate once that person got in power, which put Judas in a pretty good spot. And they all thought this because in Mark 10, John and James come to Jesus and they're like, hey, once you get on that throne, can we be your first and second in command? Because they really thought he was going to make a power play. And at this point, Judas had finally started to realize that, that Jesus wasn't really cooperating with the way they thought he should be doing things. And he's got three years invested in this guy. He's been following this teacher for three years, thinking that he's the Messiah, that he's going to turn everything around. And then he ends up flipping his allegiance and selling Jesus out. And we kind of see this come to a head in one story in the Gospels. It's accounted in a couple places. I'll read from a couple different Gospels here. But in Matthew 26, we see the breaking point. And then in John 12, we see that it was actually Judas that was the one stirring up the rest of the disciples. So Matthew 26, verse 6, says, While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, uh, we do not know who Simon the leper was, but Bethany was like a little suburb of Jerusalem, like a mile and a half away. It says, A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. So this perfume, another translation would be ointment or oil, and it was stored in an alabaster bottle. And the thing about these bottles is it was all cast together. There was no lid. So if you were going to use this oil, you had to bust the whole top off, and you had to use it all at one time or it was going to, you were going to lose it to evaporation. And we know from John that this bottle was very expensive. It was worth an entire year's wages. So that's a lot of money, any way you look at it. And this anointing of oil was a custom. It was done for a lot of different reasons. It was usually applied to the head and the feet, and it was always done to honor somebody. This never would have been done as an insult. It was way too expensive of a gesture. So we know that this lady was trying to honor Jesus. In verse 8, it says, When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. They were angry. They thought that she had done the wrong thing. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, and the money given to the poor. Again, it was worth one year's wages, right? I mean, what's that worth? 50K? If it's half that, 25. If it's a tenth of that. If it was a $2,500 bottle of perfume, that's expensive, right? We, we can all agree with that. And the, the, the thought that the disciples had was, you know, if Jesus is just going to waste good money, then we're never going to get anywhere with this whole Messiah rebellion thing because we have a war to win. And we need the funds. And in verse 10, Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. He says, first of all, why are you bothering her? It's not your perfume, right? You didn't pay for it. Why do you care what she does with it? It's hers. She gets to decide. And secondly, what she's done is a pretty special thing. Don't, don't be hard on this woman about this. In verse 11, he tells them, The poor will all, you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. And then she performed this perfume on my body. She did it to prepare me 
for burial, which would have been a red flag, right? We don't need you to die. If you die, they're going to kill us because we're all with you and we really need you to pull this thing off. And this next verse is a prophecy, whether you know it or not. This is Jesus prophesying what is happening right now. He says in verse 13, Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached, wherever this story of my life is told throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. That's insane to me. How did Jesus know that 2,000 years later, preaching the gospel on the other side of the planet, that we were going to be talking about this lady? And this isn't the first time most of y'all have heard this story, right? I mean, Taylor talked about it last week when he was leading worship, and I didn't even tell him to, right? A lot of people know this story, and Jesus predicted that this story was going to be continued to, told, to be told. John's gospel gives us a little bit more detail. He lets us know that Judas was the one behind the complaint, and it wasn't because he cared about the poor, because he was the treasurer. In verse 4 of John 12, it says, But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. I mean, if we were going to go ahead and bust that alabaster you know, bottle, we could have split it up in some you know, shot glasses and you know, up, you know, mark up. We could have made some profit here with this thing. Why didn't we do that? In verse 6, John tells us he did not say this because he actually cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And I think this point in Jesus's ministry and this lady dumping out a year's worth of wages on Jesus's head was just kind of a breaking point for Judas. And he decided it was time for him to cut his losses, right? I've got three years invested with this guy. I've just got to get out. And it tells us in John 12, verse 14 and 15, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you. And there's a lot of speculation on why Judas gave up on Jesus. Maybe he gave up. Maybe he was trying to force Jesus's hand. You know, he keeps talking about doing this. Maybe if I put a little pressure on the backside, he'll go ahead and break out. But either way, Judas was going to make sure that he was covered and that he was going to profit either way. And what he sold, the chief priest, Joseph Caiaphas, our character from last week, it wasn't more information about Jesus. They already had all the information. He sold them access to Jesus because the crowds at that point had gotten out of hand and the temple guard was not going to be able to come in there and arrest him in a public scene without the crowd taking them out. And what's crazy is like we've seen this play out in real time, like in the last two weeks when Donald J. Trump prophesied that he was going to be arrested like two Tuesdays ago, which he wasn't a good prophecy because he didn't get arrested, but it might still happen, right? And the news story, because I was watching it, I was watching it all day Tuesday, I want to see it go down. The only news story they ran all day was how they were barricading D.C. because they were worried about the crowds. They didn't want another January 6th incident. They were worried if they arrested Trump in public that his, you know, red MAGA-wearing hat followers were just going to take everybody out. And so they were preparing for that. And that's the exact situation that Jesus was in and that Caiaphas was in. And, and that's what they paid Judas to give him is you're going to tell us when he's going to be by himself when we can slide in there without causing a scene and do what we need to do. And they thought, yeah, we'll give you some money for that. So in verse 15, it says, so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Imagine 
being in that upper room. Now, we don't know what, Judas didn't write his account of the gospel, obviously, so we don't know what he was thinking, but I can imagine what he was thinking. They're sitting in the upper room. They're having this meal together for Passover. Jesus washes their feet as the ultimate example is if you're going to lead, that starts and always is serving other people. He does that for them. And then somebody comes up with the idea that, hey, after we're done with this meal, we should go to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray. We don't know if that was Jesus' idea or maybe been Judas's. It was somebody's idea, but they all agreed to it, and Judas realizes that's the perfect time. But how is he going to get out of that room and let the temple guards know to be ready? And while he's sitting there trying to figure out an excuse you know, to get out of there without drawing attention to himself, and he's smiling and playing along, Jesus leans over, and in verse 21 of John 13, he says, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. And I imagine in that moment, Judas was like, dude, I'm busted. How in the world did I think I was going to get away with this? I mean, I already know this guy, Jesus, knows everything. He, he can answer questions before they're asked. He knows the heart of man. At this point, Judas had seen him heal the lame, make blind men see. He knew he had authority over the wind and the waves in the spiritual realm. He had raised the dead man from the grave. I mean, of course Jesus was going to know what Judas's intent was. What am I going to do now? I mean, Peter's been carrying around that sword for a few weeks, acting like he's going to use it. He may be running it through. That may be the whole reason he's been carrying that sword, right? So Judas is looking for a way to dip out. And Jesus leans over, whispers in his ear in verse 27, what you're about to do, do quickly. Right now. Go. I'm not going to stop you. In fact, I've got your back. I'll provide your alibi. Go now. Verse 28 says that no one at the meal understood why Jesus said them to him. They, they assumed the best. They thought maybe Jesus is just sending them on an errand we don't know about. Jesus didn't tell them what was going down, but he did say the strangest thing in verse 31. He says, once Judas was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. He reassures them all things are going as planned. God's hand can't be forced. What is happening is supposed to happen. God's will can't be thwarted. And again, there's a lot of speculation on why Judas might have sold Jesus out. But one thing we know for sure is that he had no idea that he was going to be executed. He was handing Jesus over to the temple. And they did not have the authority to perform capital punishment. And they didn't really have that great of a charge on him. And so Jesus, he probably thought, was going to get out of it anyway. But once Judas realized that Caiaphas was working with the Roman Empire, and after he saw that Jesus was handed over to Pilate, he realized the enormous mistake that he had made. And in Matthew 27, verse 3, it says, When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. Verse 4, I have sinned, he said. For I have betrayed innocent blood. And then Caiaphas and the other high priests respond with the coldest words in all of the Gospels. Verse 4. What's that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. Yeah, we didn't really let you know what our plans were. But we paid you the silver. The deal's done. We got what we wanted. The aftermath is your problem. 
And in verse 5, it says, So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And then he went away and he hanged himself. Judas gained 30 pieces of silver, if you want to use a Jesus phrase, and lost his soul. 30 pieces of silver. I thought about getting 30 silver dollars to bring up here, but that is not a modern-day equivalent. It wasn't 30 bucks. It was more than that. So I looked up to see what, you know, 2023 value of 30 pieces of silver in, you know, 33 A.D. Roman Empire would have been. And the one that jumped out at me was that 30 pieces of silver was the average price of a first-century slave. Man, I've thought a lot about Judas Iscariot. Everything that he traded out, all the Jesus experiences, I mean, like being on the boat when he calmed the storm, being there when the guy walks out of the grave, seeing him feed thousands of people with one little basket of fish, he had seen all of it, all the relationships, all the memories, all of that stuff. He sold all that out for the price of a slave, and then he became the slave to his own deal, and I know I've done the same thing a lot of times. And I know I'm not the only one because too many people reject Jesus to preserve something that they're going to lose in the end anyway. And they hurt themselves along the way and they hurt the people around them. And we all have our own stories of us or the people around us who attempt to preserve something that they're going to lose anyway by rejecting the idea of following Jesus. We try to hang on to something that every single day has less and less and less value and less and less appeal to us. And it breaks my heart, and I think it breaks God's heart when we decide that something is more important than a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Because whatever that thing is that we're trying to barter with immediately begins to lose its appeal. And that scares me a little bit. That when we barter or bargain with God, when we resist God rather than surrender to Him, when we, like Judas, in that moment, we become responsible for the outcome. Again, when we barter with God, we are responsible for the outcome of the journey. That's exactly what the Pharisees, the chief priests, Caiaphas told them. They said, Judas, that's your responsibility. That's your issue. You chose to betray Jesus. You chose to walk away. Now you got to deal with the aftermath. And I think that should scare us. It should scare us that God will not get in the way of you having your way. And he won't get in the way of me having my way. But he also won't rob us of the responsibility and the outcome that's associated with our decisions. So again, it's scary, not because God is scary, but because God honors our freedom so much that he will not interfere with it, even if it means that we're undermining our own success and our own happiness. And when Judas couldn't get Jesus to do his bidding, he traded his relationship for something that immediately begin to devalue, and that immediately lost its appeal to him and eventually led to his demise. And I think we all have this in common. We all think that bartering is way easier than surrendering. Resisting and arguing with God is way easier than just saying, God, have your way. I'll do it your way. But the big takeaway here is that when we surrender, God takes responsibility for the outcome. It's not on us anymore. When we surrender and say, God, it's killing me to give this up, and when we finally admit that, God, it's, 
as appealing as this thing is, it's just not worth the cost of you anymore. It's not worth losing my peace. It's not worth losing sleep and my integrity over. It's just, it's just not worth it anymore. I'm going to surrender it. When we do that, God takes responsibility from there on out. Which means that the safest, most secure, most purpose-filled place for anybody to be is dead center in the will of God, but it doesn't feel safe. It doesn't feel safe. Because we equate safety with control, and the entire point of surrender is to give up control to God, and that feels way too risky and way too terrifying. But I promise you, whatever you have replaced God with in your life, that's a far more risky bargain. It's already diminishing in value, and you're going to be responsible for the outcome of that journey. So I would encourage you to stop resisting and bartering and surrender. Whatever you were tempted to trade for, following Jesus and a relationship with the living God, I promise it's a bad trade. And I think that's our big life lesson from the life of Judas Iscariot. Let me pray for us. Lord, we've all done this. We've all tried to barter and bargain and get our way. And it's blown up in our face. Lord, we see ourselves and the disciples when something isn't working out, we bail. We all do that with you, God. So we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for the strength to surrender, to put ourselves at your feet and do whatever you want. You're in control. You handle the outcome. I don't want that responsibility. Lord, I just pray you would reveal yourself to all of us in a way that we wouldn't want to do anything but surrender. You're an incredible God. So, Lord, we ask that continue to give us the strength to follow you, even when it costs us something, that we would do the right thing even when it's hard. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.